2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you, re you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve uh, you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And when and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is of no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one think of me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. For you bear, bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labours, far great, uh, more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure in me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak? and I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Artus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Amen. Andy, can I come?
Good, well, let's pray together. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for the freedom we have to gather around your words, and we thank you for the privilege of having the Bible in our own language, and we thank you for the open access that we have to you in Christ, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grab hold of these privileges this morning and make the very most of them. We pray for your help in understanding your word. We pray that you would help us to see how your truth connects with our lives and the lives of our churches. Please give us wisdom and help. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well now, we're in the last uh, bit of this letter. Um, chapters 10 to 13. Uh, there is not a handout, so you'll have to scribble on the back of a piece of paper, and I have to pay careful attention because there are no headings to help you. Um, but it's not terribly complicated this morning, and that's one of the reasons there isn't a handout. It's more, we're just looking at one passage uh, a bit more slowly, but let me just uh, paint uh, the canvas of uh, chapters 10 to 13. The thing that holds this section together, these last chapters, is that Paul is planning to visit and he wants them to be ready when he visits. Uh, the readiness is expressed in all sorts of different ways, but just notice that idea. Look at 10.1. I myself, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. In other words, I'm visiting soon. Be ready. I want it to be the right sort of visit. And so I guess to you. Look at 1214. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. Look at 12.20. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again... My God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. He's coming. He wants it to be a better visit than the last visit. If you remember, the last visit was a very difficult visit. And since the very difficult visit, there's been a very difficult letter and he wants this to be a better encounter for both sides. And I imagine they would have wanted that too because the previous encounters have been very upsetting for them as well as for him. But if it's going to be a good visit, there are things that need to be attended to. Chapter 10, verse 2. Those who consider him to be walking according to the flesh, something needs to be done about that. They need to change their minds. Same in chapter 10, verse 10. Don't let it be a severe visit. 12, 14. There's the attitude to money thing that we've mentioned already in this letter. I will not be a burden when I visit. For what I seek is not what is yours, but you. For children are not bound to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Change your mind about this, he says. <coughs> I'm not going to take your money next time either. Sort out your fighting and sectarianism, 1219. Stop all the squabbling. I don't want this to be a, a visit full of quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and all that kind of stuff. Sort out the way you deal with accusations against me and others, chapter 13, verse 1. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. In other words, 
sort out your problems before I come or else it's going to be uncomfortable. He desperately wants it to be a good visit. Chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Sort that out. Straighten yourselves out before I arrive. And he finishes off 13.10. For this, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. I don't want to be severe. I don't want to have to be severe when I come. So sort the problems out. So he's looking ahead to the next visit. He wants the visit to be a good one. He knows that if it's going to be a good one, certain things have to change. And presumably, he, he believes that they have in this letter what they need in order to sort themselves out before he arrives. That's why he's writing in advance. Now, you'll notice uh, we've looked at the beginning of chapter 10, and we've looked at a bit of chapter 12 and 13 about his visit, and we've missed out a huge chunk in the middle, chapter 11 and 12. And in this uh, middle section, chapters 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, we have Paul's famous fool's speech, as it's called, in which uh, subversively he takes the role of a fool. Bear with my foolishness for a moment, he says. And he does this to motivate them to the sort of action that will promote the change that he wants before he arrives. So this is meant to be a powerfully motivating speech. And at the heart of this speech, he goes head to head with the false apostles. Him against them, his ministry against their ministry. That, of course, is the reason that things have not been sorted out sooner in Corinth. These people are messing things up, creating conflict between Paul and the, and the Corinthians. Uh, so right at the heart of get ready before I come is deal with the issue. Deal with your relationship with these people. Now, this is really one of the most remarkable pieces of writing. I think it's probably one of the most remarkable pieces of writing in the world ever. It's really extraordinary. It's an extraordinary means of persuasion to put... to. When people are claiming superiority over you, what Paul does is he deliberately puts himself in the position of, okay, I'm a fool then. Bear with my stupidness. Hear what I have to say, stupid man that I am. It's an incredibly, it's not only clever, it's humble and powerful both at the same time. It's an extraordinary piece of writing. And uh, we're going to work our way through uh, the beginning of chapter 11 through to uh, chapter 12, verse 10. So here's heading number one. A satanic deception. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a severe and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. There are three things in this satanic deception section. First, he says, you are being led astray from Christ. He makes no bones about it. You are being led astray by these people. Second, he gives an example of how that's happening. And third, he gives a verdict uh, in the end. 
So let's first look at uh, you are being led away from Christ. Verse 2, I'm jealous for you, he says. I'm not jealous to possess you myself. I'm jealous because I, um, how shall I put it? I arranged the marriage between you and the Lord Jesus. I brokered the marriage. How did he do that? In bringing the gospel to them. I want you to be committed to him. That's why I'm jealous for you. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, your thoughts will be led astray from a severe and pure devotion to Christ. How do I know that? How do I know that you are in danger of being led astray? Because you put up with all sorts of things. You put up with, verse 4, another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel from the one you accepted. The gospel they accepted was what betrothed them to Jesus. And they're putting up with a different Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel now, he says. Corinthians, that is what you are putting up with in putting up with these people. A different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. Now, those are very strong words, aren't they? I imagine those were very surprising words for the Corinthians. To be told that what they were putting up with was a different Jesus and a different gospel. How is that happening, they may have asked. How are we doing that? We don't think we're doing that. How are we doing that? Well, says Paul, you are doing that. And the way you're doing it is by believing that I am inferior to these super apostles. In these verses, Paul makes a very, very close link between Jesus and himself. Look at verse 4. Another Jesus to the one I proclaimed. Verse 5. I am not in the least inferior. What is the point of bringing himself and Jesus so close together here? I preach the authentic Jesus to you in word and in pattern of ministry. If you now think me inferior to those other apostles and their way of doing things as superior to mine, you are in fact buying into a different Jesus and a different spirit and a different gospel. You see, if they no longer accept the Apostle Paul as the authentic messenger of Jesus, they have changed their mind about Jesus, not just about him. Now, all the way through this weekend, we've been dealing with the question, what does true gospel ministry look like? Here is why the question matters. Because the shape of the gospel ministry that you conduct is intimately tied up with the Jesus that you proclaim, absolutely inseparably. The minute you start believing that the apostle of Jesus is inferior, you have in fact changed your mind about the Jesus that he proclaims. Let me say that again. The minute you start believing that the apostle of Jesus is inferior to others, you have in fact changed your mind about Jesus. And what Paul does here, I think, is goes on to give an example of how that's happening in Paul's, uh, and the example is Paul's money habits. Uh, now, we've bumped into this money issue a number of times in this letter, and here we bump into it again, verse 7. It seems to have been an area that the false apostles made much of. They seem to have viewed Paul as inferior because he would not accept financial support from them and them as a better sort of apostle because they would accept financial support from them. Only an inferior apostle would not receive money. Let me read verses 7 to 11. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, 
this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I love you. Was it sinful that I didn't take your money? Why are you upset with me then? Have you really come to believe that my refusal of financial support is a sign that I don't love you? Presumably, the super apostles are, exact, are arguing precisely that. If he loved you, he would take your money. <laughs> and presumably, they're arguing the flip side as well, that the reason that they will take the Corinthians' money is that they love the Corinthians more than Paul does. What Paul is saying is that this is a really serious matter, this financial thing. You cannot start to believe this about me without being led astray from Christ. Why does Paul not take their money? Because he doesn't love them? And thinks that if he take them... Sorry, no. Because he doesn't love them? No. Because he does love them. And he thinks that if he takes their money, they will understand the gospel wrongly. And verse 12, he's got no intention whatever of changing his practice here. Because he wants to distinguish himself from those who claim to have the same apostolic authority as he does. Why does he not take their money? Right from the start, from Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, he has been the apostle to the Gentiles. And right from the start, his Gentile ministry has been a ministry of preaching grace, not works of the law, to be right with God. And right from the start, he has, in line with that, been a free-of-charge preacher. His personal free-of-chargeness meshes with his grace-not-works message. You cannot pay for the Apostle Paul, and you cannot pay for the salvation that he preaches. They go together absolutely with one another. You can't pay for him. You can't pay for access to God. And what he's arguing here is that the difference over money reflects a fundamental difference in his message compared to their message. They are happy to have Gentiles pay for them, and they want Gentiles to come under the law. He is not happy to have Gentiles pay for him, and he says Gentiles must not come under the law. They go hand in hand with one another, those. What's Paul's verdict on that? Verse 13. Such men are false apostles. The fact that they'll take your money shows that they are deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also... <coughs> disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now, I imagine, as this letter was read out in the church in Corinth, there were sharp indrawings of breath at this point. Look what he's calling them. These superior-looking apostles, pseudo-apostles. He's saying they're in disguise. They are Servants of Satan in disguise. It could not be stronger. So we move from the, servant, the serpent's deception in verse 3 through to the servants of Satan in verse 14. There's a satanic deception going on in Corinth. And of course, the difficulty is that like all the best satanic deceptions, it looks ever so close to the real thing. These people look really impressive. They speak really impressively. They live really impressively. They're rigorous about law-keeping. He says, servants of Satan, that's what they are. Very strong, isn't it? Very surprising diagnosis. And Paul's verdict is that there are two different sorts of apostle, diametrically different sorts of apostle here. Verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool then so that I too may boast a little. Uh, 
the, the super apostles are full of boasting. And boasting is a big Corinthian theme in both the letters. The super apostles, I think, are boastful, and they have accentuated the Corinthian boastfulness. So Paul kind of plays a, an anti-boastful game here. He, uh, he boasts, but in really anti-boastful kinds of ways. Think me a fool, do you? Think me inferior, do you? Well, even if you do, you put up with all sorts of things. So you can listen to me for a bit, can't you? That's the kind of tone. Verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, deeply sarcastic here. Of course, they thought themselves wise. You're so wise, so wise that you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you. How wise you are to bear with that or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. You're so wise, you'll put up with all that. You see how he flips it over? You idiots, you foolish people. Why do you put up with all that? What is, why is this list of things here being described? This is what the false apostles are doing for the Corinthians. Enslaving them, devouring them, taking their money, taking their stuff, taking their honor and love putting on airs, striking them in the face. Is this metaphorical? Don't know. Is there physical violence going on? Could be. To my shame, I must say we were. Oh, we were too weak for that. We weren't, we weren't strong like them. <laughs> deeply sarcastic. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. <laughs> he gets his credentials out now. I'm talking like a madman. You know, he's, he's kind of playing their game, but not playing their game here. I'm talking like a madman. I've got all the same credentials of ethnicity and ancestry and spiritual heritage that they have, but I'm a better servant of Christ. What shows that he's a better servant of Christ? Verse 23. With far greater labors, I worked harder, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times beaten with rods. Stoned once, that happened back in Lystra, where Timothy uh, uh, is picked up from. Three times shipwrecked, for a night and a day adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, from Gentiles. Danger in the city in the wilderness, at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and, apart from other things, as if all that weren't enough, <laughs> there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak and I'm not, Who's made to fall, and I'm not indignant? Notice that list. How do you know I'm a better servant of Christ? Well, look at all the stuff that's happened. Look at what my life is like. Notice what he puts at the end of the list, almost the, 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 the climax of the list. Not the physical suffering but the daily pressure on me of my anxiety. Notice the phrase for all the churches, not just you, not just you. You're not the only people in the surface of the world. There's been so much in this letter about Paul's travels, having to explain why he didn't come, why he didn't visit, and that kind of thing. Why? Because he's concerned for all the churches, unlike the Corinthians, who are just concerned for themselves. Unlike the false apostles, who 
don't really care about the other churches at all. There are many things that mark the apostle out. But supremely, he says, my daily anxiety for the churches. Why all that suffering? Well, in many ways, all of that suffering is a product of his concern for the churches. He gets that because of the work he does for the churches. The churches are the product of his gospel work. He endures all of that stuff for the sake of the salvation of the churches. I do what I do for them. I am always anxious for all of them. I think about them every day. There's never a day when I'm not worried about this church there or that church over there. And these things, all of these things, demonstrate my superiority as an apostle. Why do these things demonstrate his superiority? Is it just that they demonstrate love for the cause and love for the churches? No, there's something more profound than that. Much more profound than that. Now, I'm going to read... Uh, straight the way through from verse 30 uh, through to chapter 12, verse 10, and then comment briefly. There is something much more profound here that shows him to be the genuine apostle. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Why does he mention that strange event? Odd to drop that in there, isn't it? Let's go on. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I'll not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast... I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, they were great revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice there are three things put together here, side by side. There's the escape from Damascus in a basket out the window down the wall. There's the being caught up to the third heaven. Then there's the being brought down to earth through the thorn or stake or whatever that word means. There's a down, up, down pattern here. And I think that's what links these three events together. What do we have in the middle? We have a magnificent experience of some sort. But notice how vague he is about this experience. Was it a grand experience? Absolutely. Is he talking about one? Is he talking about himself? Absolutely, he's talking about himself. <laughs> I know a guy who is like one of those. I have a friend who. It's, I know a guy who he's, he, he kind of doesn't talk about it as being him, but of course he's talking about himself. Why is he doing that? Because he's not wanting to boast about this as though it makes him special. But why is he mentioning it? Well, almost certainly because the false apostles claim special revelations, special experiences, special out-of-body experiences, 
Hence his, you know, was it in the body? Was it not in the body? Well, I don't know. God knows. He's vague about that as well. In the middle, there is this obviously splendid experience that he had. Notice what he says about it. Things that cannot be told, that man may not utter. So I'm not going to tell you about it. I'll kind of point you in the direction that it happened, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to fill it in, because that's not what it was for. On behalf of this man I'll boast, but on my own behalf I'll not boast except of my weaknesses, verse 5. Though I should, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. It happened. I could boast about it, but I don't wish to boast about it. So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me and hears from me. In other words, I want you to judge me by what you see and hear, not by the experiences I claim. Do you remember back in chapter 5, he said, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. I don't want you to judge me on what I claim. I want you to look at what you see and hear. Almost certainly the false apostles claim supernatural paranormal experiences as something that validates them being superior to Paul. It's always a powerful card to play that one, the paranormal experience card. It immediately seems to put you in a different realm from the person you're talking to. It's always worth being suspicious of that, folks. Always, every time. When somebody gets their special experience of the Lord out on the table, it's always worth being suspicious of why, that's being, why that card is being played now. Paul is not willing to play that card. He's driven to it. But even in playing that card, he just downplays it massively. Why is this person mentioning their great supernatural experience? It's nearly always a bid for superiority over someone else or control over someone else. Paul is sharply different from that. 12 verse 2, he's so vague about it all. I know a guy who, in or out of the body, oh, I don't know. Caught up to paradise, in or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Things that can't be told, which man may not utter. Could boast about it, but I don't want to boast about it. <laughs> he so downplays it. I've had it, but I'm going to just massively downplay that. It's not important. He's coy about saying that it was him. He's absolutely not using this as proof of his apostolic authority. That's not what he's doing with it. If anything, what this does say is spiritual highs, yeah, people have those. But I want to tell you about my weaknesses, verse 5. That's what I'll tell you about. You see, either side of this third heaven gig, there are two really humiliating experiences. Being lowered down the wall in a basket to escape. I mean, that's so uncool, isn't it? It's so non-triumphal. And then being brought down to the earth through this thorn or stake or whatever that term means. Nobody's quite sure about what that means. We don't know what this thorn in the flesh was. Is it a physical thing? Is it a relational thing? Could even be the interference from the counter mission all the way through his ministry. But it's impossible to know. He doesn't, he's not specific about that. Paul, which of these episodes, the three put side by side, which of these episodes has anything worth retelling about it? Well, 12-4, no, there's nothing worth retelling about that heavenly thing. But look at 12-8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about the thorn, that it should leave me. Why three times? Why does he mention three times? What does that remind you of? Anyone? Louder? Yeah, could be, but probably not. Another three times in the Gospels. 
Christ in Gethsemane, three times he prays that this hour would pass from him. It's very Gethsemane-like. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But, and here's a word from the Lord, here's the word from the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I could go on, I could go on about that big heavenly experience, but I have nothing worth saying about that that will help you. The word I want to say and the word the Lord has given me is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is the sign that Paul is a real apostle? The sign that Paul is a real apostle. It is this, that the power of the Lord Jesus made him endure the most extreme weakness. And folks, that is how the Lord Jesus does things. And his way of doing things spills over to his messengers. And you can tell if they're his messengers by whether the same marks of humiliation and endurance belong to them. How can you tell that Paul is a genuine servant of Christ? Well, says Paul, I look like him. And people often relate to me just the way they related to him. I look like him in the sense that I get the kind of stuff that he got. And people relate to me just as they did to him. What's, how do people relate to Jesus? Falsely accusing, abandoning, um, unjustly judging, punishing physically, humiliating. All of that is there in Paul's list. And here's the question for the Corinthians. Corinthians, who will you line up with? Which sort of apostle will you be yoked together with? The triumphal-looking super-apostles who lord it over you and take your staff and claim to be superior and put you down and want to captivate you? Or the suffering apostle? That's the choice. 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. There's a choice to be made here. Two models of ministry, two patterns of apostleship, one true, one serving Satan. Choose. Folks, our time is gone. Let's just draw to a close. Uh, two things to say to close. Uh, this passage is sharply divisive. It presents every reader with a choice. It is possible that you're here this weekend and facing yourself this kind of choice. Being presented with two different models of Christianity. A triumphant looking one that seems to promise greater victory and escape from the sufferings of the world. A higher spiritual life, more immediate revelation from God, special words, or a much weaker looking one that just points people to faith in Christ crucified. Ask yourself, which model of spirituality is the Lord Jesus behind? Verse nine. Which model of spirituality does he endorse? Which model of spiritual living did he himself pursue? There's a choice to be made here. And of course, we're not faced with precisely the same problems that the Corinthians were faced by. But there are two patterns of ministry which run down the centuries. There's a cross-shaped pattern and there's a victorious-looking pattern. And there is a sharp choice to be made. For in this age, the Lord Jesus is behind the cross-shaped one, not the victorious one. As we learned yesterday, the cross-shaped one will lead to great glory, but not in this age, in the age to come. There's a choice to be made. 
Second thing to say about this passage is that it is enormously encouraging. I don't think I've ever met a real Christian who doesn't worry whether they have the real thing or not. Do you come to church? Well, how, how are you when you come to church on Sunday? Uh, most often I come to church on Sunday and I walk through the door and I think to myself, gosh, these people all look happy. And they look like they've got their lives together. And if they only knew what I've been struggling with this week, they, you know, can it be that anybody feels as struggling over sin as I do here? Don't you ever think in those, ever, ever felt like that? Don't you, ever, don't you think in those situations, I'm sure I can't be a proper Christian. I'm sure it can't really have taken hold of me. Why is it not better than it is? Now, the truth is that every real Christian feels like that. The feeling that it ought to be better than it really is now. Surely belonging to the risen Jesus would be more dramatic, more spectacular, more powerful feeling. And to make that even worse, we live in an age of cool, where good things look really good. I mean, whether you're an iPhone or a Samsung person, cool is the air that we breathe. It is incredibly easy just to absorb that atmosphere. You know, if it's true, it just works. It ought to be straightforward and easy. And it's very easy for that assumption to invade our spiritual lives with the result that we feel substandard all the time as Christians because we can't quite pull off cool in the Christian life. It doesn't just work, does it? We can't quite pull off the successful spirituality, so we wonder if we've really got it. And we look at our churches and we think, can our church ever be useful and effective in this world? It's just not cool. It's slightly naff. Folks, we need a bit of perspective here. Just look back through the ages. Look back through the ages. Has the gospel continued to advance all the time in every age? Answer, absolutely it has. Can you point to any age in which church looked really cool? Folks, it's always looked slightly naff, at best. And most of the time, really rubbish all over the place. The truth is that God uses really rubbish-looking things to do what he's doing in this world. He has always used weak-looking things to do what he does in this world. He has always used weak-looking people to do what he does in his world. That's what he does. Look at the words, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is completed in weakness and look at verse 10 when I am weak then I am strong or look back to chapter 4 verse 7 we have the treasure that we have in jars of clay to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. Folks, just get a grip on this. You are never going to feel great as a Christian in this age. You are never going to feel successful. You are never going to feel leaping tall buildings at a single band type Christian. That's not what it's like. In this age, the gospel life is lived out in weakness, feelings of inadequacy, humiliation, Difficulty, struggle, hardship. As it was for the Lord Jesus on the way to the cross, so it was for his apostle, and so it is for us. Do not buy into an alternative spirituality. It's just not there. Let's pray together.
Just a minute to think about these words. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might believe the words of the Apostle. We pray that we might become content with weaknesses. We pray that we might take to heart the truth that the power of the Lord Jesus is lived out in weakness and in profound experiences of difficulty. We pray that you would deliver us from looking for something beyond the cross-shaped life in this age. We acknowledge the massive attraction of something better. We long for the day when things will be better. We thank you that there will be a day when things will be better. We thank you for the instant transformation of the world and of ourselves which will take place when the Lord Jesus returns. We thank you that one day he will be seen by everyone to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords and that he will reign gloriously over everything, perfected everything forever, including ourselves. We long for that day. Help us in the meantime to be content with weaknesses and to believe that you are working through them and able to use them and indeed that it is your plan to do so. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.